Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another, what are we doing? Another edition of Roll Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Don't laugh at me, Diane. I got a couple times to start out throughout the course of the day. I just got to think about where I'm at. The program where we gather every day at this time and we continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. And anytime Dan Sullivan's here, we get really good at between rural and urban America. Jenny Swaggart checking in from school. Are you not in the principal's timeout yet, Jenny, or what's going on with that? Not yet. I've been doing pretty well, actually. Yesterday was a little touch and go. We had our first field trip, but everybody got back safely, and I had a good head count. So I think I passed. I hope. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're making sure that you had the same number of students return from the field trip that left? What are they, second graders? No, you have to count and then you have to recount. And there's even a button on the bus that you have to go back and touch before the door is allowed to open. Otherwise, an alarm goes off. And it's a safety mechanism to make sure that no children are left on the bus. And I drove a bus yesterday, too. Diane, you told me we can't talk about controlling people's lives, but that's that's communist control. You can't even get on the leave with the bus. And What if there's two kids you want to leave at the field trip? They can't. Unless it's an emergency and is only if their parents or guardians have said that they can. Diane There's Sullivan's a lot more to this teaching that people don't understand yeah. or know. How are you, Diane? Uh, I'm good. It's it's a bit chilly here in Massachusetts, but that's what October brings. It also I brings the Top Field Fair, which I've yet to get to this week, but I plan to. Hmm. Interesting. What? Tell us about the fair. Yeah. The Topsfield Fair, from what I understand, is, or at least it was because it did not happen last year in 2020, the longest standing agriculture fair in the country. Um, it celebrated its 200th anniversary, I believe, in 2018. Um, and so it's, you know, it's an agriculture fair like others where, uh, you know, folks can go and and hang out with the, with the animals, which is my favorite part, uh, with the livestock, you know, so edu- agriculture, education, and then, of course, all of the good carnival food and fair and fun. Um, so it's usually a birthday tradition of mine. My birthday was earlier this week, uh, but the weather wasn't very cooperative. And I had plans to go yesterday, but work got in the way. But I will get there before Sunday, no, Monday, which will be the last day. Happy birthday. I, I- we now know why you were on both of our minds this week, because it was your birthday. The stars are lining up. Happy birthday. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's interesting for the past, let me see, since 2016, since I engaged in that question three here in Massachusetts having to do with cage-free eggs, um, I, on my birthday every year, have celebrated in one way or another honoring agriculture. Um, and in 2016, in fact, I debated on my birthday that night, uh, one of the former, uh, oh no, actually maybe he's still with the Humane Society of the United States, um, but debated one of their vice presidents on the question three issue here in Massachusetts. And that, so I can't, my birthday cannot pass where I don't reflect back on um, 2016 and, uh, you know, honor the, the farmers and ranchers who feed us. Uh, Diane, it's really relevant now 
because of what's happening in the country, particularly California and Proposition 12, which has farm groups and farmers trying to scramble. I say let them starve. For those that are not up to speed listening, Proposition 12 really is very similar to Prop 3, which I want Diane to walk us through, and you'll see why in a minute. But California has the most stupid set of over-restrictive laws. No, they're not laws. They're regulations on how farmers have to treat animals. And now they've extended that anybody who sells food products in California must comply with their overzealous regulations in the state of California. So it's people trying to figure out, do we want to try to meet these or what do we want to do now? You, you tell me it's 2016. I can't believe it's already been five years. Now looking back, what's the general consensus as it, they made it impossible for people to have domestically grown eggs in the state of Massachusetts, Diane, kind of give us a recap, not your feelings, but what do other people see what's going on here yet? Or how's this all going to play out? Well, um, question three from 2016 in Massachusetts actually hasn't gone into effect yet. It will go into effect January 1, 2022. Um, so the voters oh. in Massachusetts who were misled by the Humane Society of the United States on what the intent and the impact of question three would be, um, they haven't felt the harm from that. And essentially, um, there has been a lot going on. Um, in terms of the legislature stepping in, trying to fix this broken regulation, um, because there was certainly an acknowledgement that when we, well, and, and I'll actually back up a minute, because Trent, you mentioned um, the sale. The, when the cage-free egg law first came to California, it was dealing with the production, um, mm -hmm. the production side of it all. And when they right. came to Massachusetts, um, you know, and for those, and I'm sure most of your listeners know in Massachusetts, you know, if if we were forced to have to feed ourselves, we would starve to death because we import more than 90 percent of the food that we consume. And so question three in Massachusetts, while it dealt with the production and sale, um, particularly and I really focused on um, eggs, you know, having had my own experiences with my family with hunger, knowing how much we relied upon this extremely affordable and accessible source of protein to get us through when I didn't have enough money to purchase, you know, animal protein. Here in Massachusetts, um, what was, what was really different was getting at the, the sale, but also in Massachusetts, um, the standard, uh, size, the size requirement for the, for the hens, for the cages was different as well. And so, we mandated, again, the Humane Society of the United States was here, very busy in Massachusetts, spending millions of dollars trying to convince um, the voters of Massachusetts that we somehow had the power um, to regulate farmers in other states, because ultimately there would only be one farm in Massachusetts that would be impacted by question three. But yet they spent, I think it was about $4 million um, to convince the voters otherwise. So, um, and, and you know, this, this is a farm. I went and visited the farm. I went and visited the hens that the Humane Society of the United States were, you know, said were going insane and, you know, out in Western Massachusetts. And in fact, it was a really efficient and, uh, very healthy and, and, and safe for the hens. So, um, again, this, this really as an anti-hunger, anti-poverty, you know, activist from the East Coast, um, 2016 really opened my eyes to all that has been going on when I, you know, my focus has been 
How do we ensure that everybody has access to safe, affordable, nutritious food? Never realizing all this, really, this food fight that was going on behind the scenes between animal rights extremists, you know, and farmers and ranchers who try, you always hear me say this, you know, I'm all about bringing people with what I call lived experience or lived expertise to the table. And how I define that in my work is those who have had the experience of poverty, of hunger, of homelessness, like I have, and in other social determinants of health. And saying, if we're going to solve for these issues, we have to be at the table. Our perspectives, our knowledge, our insight, and our expertise needs to inform the discussion. And so coming into this, the food fight, and realizing, my gosh, like, we may not be very politically aligned. Um, and we've talked about this a lot. Um but there's so much in common between those who are experiencing poverty and hunger and homelessness and the farmers and ranchers who feed us where other people have been sharing our narratives. Um, other people have been telling our stories for us. And in there, um, it leaves no room for us to step in and really share our truths. Um, so that's something that I see as a really big connector. Um, I think, you know, both Trent and Jenny, that's why I connect so much with you. Um, and I just feel like the more that we can educate, um, both low income consumers on, you know, when you're going to the grocery store and you can't afford to feed your family, what's going into that? What's actually causing that? Who's standing between the farmers and the ranchers, uh, making all of the money while the farmers and the ranchers are still struggling to pay their bills and people, uh, despite spending significant, you know, portions of their income on food still can't afford to eat. Yeah, and I think it's very significant that the chicken that lays the egg is the most attacked farm animal because, quite as you've walked us through many times, Diane, the egg is the most affordable, high-quality protein that you can access to feed your family. And uh, so, consequently, the chicken's the one that's targeted. Protein and fat have been demonized. we got to continue with this on the other side of the break. One of the other proteins not as affordable as an egg, I'll just tell you straight up. Certified Piedmontese creates the opportunity for you as a cattleman. Now, if you're a cattleman in Massachusetts, this is probably not going to work for you. But if you're a cattleman in Missouri, it might. It works really well in the Great Plains of America. Get more details about getting paid properly for a high-quality beef production. In this case, it's the myostatin gene from the Piedmontese cattle that makes it tender every time. Marlon Will with full details. Got an email from a butcher last night. He says, will this get rid of this excessive fat? Yes, it will. Details at LungCreekCalico.com. We'll be back with more Roll Out after this. Welcome back. Roll Out, Trent Lewis alongside Jenny Swigert from the school Tremont. Yes, sir. Tremont, Tremont, right? Yeah. And Medford, Massachusetts, a little, you know, satellite. And may Suburb. I add, this is back guest from Massachusetts this last two weeks. I I'm know. I thought about that. Yeah. Okay. Before we get back to something relevant, uh, there were many people commenting saying Massachusetts has agriculture. Yeah, yeah, actually it does. Who knows the number one farm product produced in Massachusetts? Um, is, should I hit the buzzer? <laughs> Do you have a buzzer? <laughs> it's not um, eggs. By the way, it's not eggs. 
We know it's not eggs. In in 2022, I, I don't know. I don't know if we'll have eggs. There's going to be a shortage or the, the prices are going to skyrocket like they did yeah, okay. in California. On, but hold, I'm hold going on. to say cranberries. Hold on. You're like a runaway thing? horse. We'll get there, but I want to stay tuned right here. They will get there. <laughs> I'm going to say something, you know, that is harvested from the Chesapeake Bay or something. Yeah. Just from a, um, meeting a, a guy that's educated. there. Right. No, that wouldn't be the right answer, but I would come up with something like that. Hey, particularly oh, for horses. Really? Yeah. Cattle and dairy cattle. Number two, I'll just tell you, instead of putting you through all that pain and anguish, number two is fruit and tree bearing crops. Number three might surprise most people. Dairy cows. Really? Number four, beef cattle. That, those are the top four farm-produced products in the state of Massachusetts. Very interesting. Which still amounts to very little production. Yeah. By the way, the, <laughs> well, the, the, yeah. the hay acres, 145,000 acres. That's number one. And that is almost a third of all farm products produced in Massachusetts. So what that tells me, Diane, is that people... They don't want to see a cow. They just want to see green grass growing out there that the farmer then goes out and makes them into a bale of hay. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, every time I see a cow in Massachusetts, I stop to admire, take a picture, um, because it's not too often. But we definitely have rural parts in Massachusetts, and it's particularly this time of year. We're a little bit late on foliage season, but it's a wonderful. But we do have cows, but not many. The reason I was surprised about hay is because the ground and the sections and tracks that are out in Massachusetts are typically really abnormally shaped, and it can be very difficult for machinery and equipment to get in and out of those fields. So I'm I'm surprised, and I would say that, Trent, you're onto something that they want to see the green fields and feel yeah. romantic about, about what's happening in farming. I, I agree 100%. So with those odd-shaped fields, I don't know whether it would be appropriate to make a round bale or a square bale. Apparently, you well, got to think about that one. So it didn't work. Never mind. If we could have an octagon bale, maybe that would be okay. All right, Diane, that runaway horse. If January 1, 2022 is when this question three goes into play, but you've already said that you import most eggs into Massachusetts. It's not really going to have an impact on the, on the food price, is it? Oh, absolutely it will. Um, and here's the, <laughs> the, the, the stick on Massachusetts in which is, and, and I, I realize I am a runaway horse because I started to talk about this and I didn't finish my thought was the space that's required. So, um, the industry standard, and again, I, you know, I'm not a farmer or a rancher, so please correct me if I'm wrong. From what I understand, the industry standard is about a foot of space per egg-laying hen. And in Massachusetts, uh, as question three was posed and ultimately passed, it required a foot and a half of space. And so this puts Massachusetts in a very uh, bad predicament, being such a small state, um, you know, farmers in other states aren't going to rush to, you know, recreate their hen housing for the uh, few consumers in Massachusetts at a foot and a half of space per hen. And mm -hmm. so the Humane Society, which... Of course Di Di Diane, I need to interrupt you. 
which I don't want to do, but I have to. I have to be reminded, question three pertain to chickens in the state of Massachusetts or pertain to any eggs sold in the state of Massachusetts? Both. Oofta. Oh, okay. Yes. and That's a huge deal. It is a huge deal. Um, And... What it's going to do, because again, if, if farmers and ranchers, it just doesn't make economic sense. Why would they produce a whole new barn uh, for Massachusetts when we're such a small state? Mm-hmm. And so what that's going to do then, of course, and I'm sure some are building saying, hey, Massachusetts is really about to screw itself and there's an opportunity to make money here. Um, but in general, uh, farmers aren't going to do that. And so what's going to happen Come January first, twenty twenty-two, um, is and and again, I know there has been some talk in the legislature about fixing this to bring the standard down. So the irony to me, though, is um, and Trent and Jenny, I know that you'll get this. So the Humane Society of the United States states sends spends you know about four million dollars trying to convince the voters of Massachusetts to allow for a foot and a half of space for hens. And then as soon as question three was done, they're back into the Massachusetts legislature. I'm sure they were paying themselves saying, hey, we actually want less space for hens. The irony of that, again, the Humane Society spending all of that money saying a foot and a half of space for hens. I was on the other end saying this is going to be damaging. The price of eggs is going to shoot up just like we saw in California. The press, the precedent is there. But in fact, it's probably going to be worse in Massachusetts because of our lack of production and the fact that it was on the sale of eggs, not just the production. And so, again, as soon as the the, the door is closed on question three, here comes the Humane Society saying, mm. of course, they're not mm. going to say Diane was right. Um, but they ultimately have said Diane was right. And we, in fact, want less space for hens. So the Humane Society of the United States has been actively advocating for less space uh, for the hens that they claimed were, um, you know, going insane here in Massachusetts uh, because of their their conditions. Not not to put the fear of God in you, but in 2008, because I was there 14 times in California when we were fighting Proposition 2, we attempted to tell 37 million Californians your cost of eggs is going to go up significantly. And then January 1... 2015 when the cost of eggs tripled and if you look at all 50 states right now the only state where egg prices continue to escalate is california and 2015 when that proposition 2 went into effect all the media in the the state said why didn't they tell us that egg prices were going to go up they tripled and we're like we did but nobody was listening and now you're in the same exact situation diane right and and the reckoning will come just just a few months from now. And and I I don't think that you know people are still you know and so, and how the I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering how this is uh, transferring over to those people who are trying to work alongside of you with food availability at because food prices are going up before this. Mm-hmm. They're escalating. Absolutely. The infrastructure and then- is is balanced. You got Jenny. And I'm thinking also, so in a part of the state where Trent grew up and we go and hunt in, uh, Mount Sterling, Illinois, has a Dorothy's. It's a grocery store that is owned by that 
or dot foods. And basically they sell almost expired food or, you know, food that did not resonate well with consumers. It's all sold for very, very, very cheap amounts of money. And one of the things that we actually buy quite a bit of is the restaurant leftover eggs that either, mm. or you can, they come in these little packets and they're individual. Um, it's a great effort. I, we love that store. Um, but then I have to wonder why, I mean, with what you're saying and then having so much availability here to access that type of a protein. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm looking at the comment from Jerry, um, you know, who shared their own experience. Right. And I think what what has happened in, in what we do here in this country is when folks are struggling to feed themselves, to house themselves, you know, whatever the case might be, we, we put a lot of the um, there's a lot of shaming that happens. Right. So people don't often want to come forward and say, well, and for good reason. Well, I couldn't feed my kids yesterday, so they went to bed on an empty belly. That makes me subject, you know, open to, you know, state officials coming in and questioning my my parenting. Um, and so what we do is we've kind of set the stage where we make it so that, well, if you come and share your personal struggles, we're going to judge you. Um, we're, we're going to talk about how you as an individual are a failure and we don't look at the systems that we have in place. Um, that would impact, you know, a person's ability to, to feed themselves, to feed their children. Diane, I will ask you to continue how we feed ourselves and deal with that self image. Jolene just chimed in, save the cowboy, get the song from Karen Staley. It's on her website, karenstaley.com back with more roll route second half after this. Welcome back. We're all route, Trent Luce alongside Diane Sullivan coming to us from Massachusetts. Jenny Swigert from somewhere in the land of Lincoln in a high school. Uh, okay, I wanted to talk about dot foods, but first I want Diane to finish her thought process there. Because can I, I want you also. Yeah. So are you saying how it can positively change? The resources are available there to help families make a positive change. Is that what you were saying? Well, what I'm, I think what's important here and what has been missed um, in, you know, decades of our approach to uh, anti-poverty efforts, um, again, has been to, uh, as, as animal rights extremists try to do with farmers and ranchers, is to have the conversation without those who are the experts. Um, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, and so what I, what I do is really try to set the stage so that we're actually centering the voices of people with lived experience, because that's when when people realize that there are systems in play, that there are some uh, pretty, you know, some bad players who don't want Very. people having access to meat. They don't want people eating animals. So one way to do that, of course, is to increase the cost of production, which ultimately comes on to the consumer. And so when when we are able to enter into the room to share our stories, that's when stories like I had when when I was approached about question 3, I was a skeptic. I was like, "Wait a minute. This is this I don't know if these are my people. What are they selling or trying to sell?" 
Um, and then I did my research and I, and I, when I learned, thankfully with the support um, of, you know, some, some folks in agriculture, what really was going on. And then my, my egg consumption, that, how much I relied on eggs to literally keep my family alive when I, when I only had some loose change to go to the grocery store, that story becomes so much more relevant, but it's never one that's shared in the space where these decisions are being made. So, you know, thankfully to, you know, Forrest Lucas and Protect the Harvest, I was able to stand up and give voice. Um, but we came in a, you know, we, we only stood up the campaign, you know, a couple of months before um, the election itself. And we just didn't have the time um, or the money to really, I think, inform people and engage people like myself in this discussion. You're going to have Brian Klippenstein crying if you don't say, and also Brian Klippenstein. Of course, and also Brian Klippenstein. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how has the whole discussion in the anti-poverty movement in uh, Massachusetts or all of the East Coast, if you want to tie that in, Diane, changed in the last two years because of what we've been living through? I can g- I'll give you sort of my national perspective on this, is that there is an absolute acknowledgement um, and and folks, particularly in the nonprofit world, are working to shift. And I'm providing some technical assistance and some guidance around this on how do we center uh, the voices of those people who are directly impacted by, you know, bad policy, whether it be food policy mm. or housing policy. As somebody like myself with these lived experiences and I happen to be I'm a policy expert who happens to have the lived experience of poverty. And so. The value that I bring is is understanding making this connection. And I think there's there's often an assumption that people like myself, we don't understand. We need people to advocate on our behalf. We need somebody to be the voice for us. And my argument is, no, we don't. We, we need the tools and the resources to better understand how policy impacts our lives directly and then to acknowledge that we do have a voice and that we need to bring that to the table. And so I work with my clients. I do independent consulting work. And what I do is to really help them set the space to say, how do you invite community into the room? And then how how do you actually shut up and listen and really listen to learn what is the community? What, what, what is the community telling you? And, and, you know, if you ever bring in people into a space who have experienced hunger and ask them, what are the biggest barriers that you have to food? They're going to tell you it's accessibility and affordability. And I've said this a lot in, in the anti-hunger space. We go, we talk a lot about accessibility, but we don't talk about affordability. And so I'm trying to push that conversation, but, but naturally it has to come from the community. It can't come from me as the individual, um, mm-hmm. but it, it needs to come from the community. So I'm trying to really set up that stage and to really Make this connection between the anti-hunger world and the farming world, the agriculture world that doesn't exist, I think, to a scale that it could or it should. Diane, you did not answer my question. How has it changed since March of 2020? We're, we're having these conversations. This change is going to take time. I think the change for 2020 was the acknowledgement. Um, oh, we're maybe not the experts. We're experts in our own right but we haven't been listening to community. Now we're ready to listen to community. And honestly, I I feel part of my role 
is going in to teach people how to listen to community. You've been doing great things and advocating on behalf of, you know, low-income communities. However, we're still in this position. We're still suffering from poverty and hunger and homelessness. And so why don't we flip the script? Why don't we center community? Let us walk us through to solutions. Okay. One other thing along those lines, we know that there have been trillions, literally trillions, plethoras of dollars handed out and given to people. In fact, we know that there's a work ethic problem because people are getting too much money when it comes to handouts today. Has that made an impact into food availability for people in your in your communities that you work with? Well, I would say that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the USDA um, uh, issued, they allowed the states to take advantage of certain waivers. And one of them I thought, you know, was particularly helpful um, was that everybody who was re- receiving SNAP benefits came to max benefit. And, and what that means is that, you know, if let's say a family of, you know, uh, uh, let's say a single individual, um, mm-hmm. say they qualified for maybe $30 in SNAP benefits, SNAP being formerly known as food stamps, the, the federal government supplemental nutrition assistance program. So somebody, you know, prior to the pandemic was on SNAP and receiving, say, $50 a month in support. Um, when the pandemic hit, if they were in a state that requested this waiver through the USDA, uh, they would then, they were now receiving a, about $197, maybe now a little bit more, um, but about $200 a month as opposed to the $50 a month. And, and again, I, that's a wonderful thing. Um, I actually went before the USDA, the USDA had a listening session. They wanted to know from folks, should we change the formula on how we determine SNAP benefits? And I went with a colleague of mine, Jamika Mills uh, from Houston, Texas, and we went in and said, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of, again, sharing our stories, we've got to increase these benefits. But but here's the thing, uh, you know, and I agree these benefits should be increased, absolutely, because of the cost of food. But I'm still waiting for that point. When does the anti-hunger community start to talk about the policies that are impacting the cost of food? So I don't feel that we're quite there yet, uh, but I'm still, I'm encouraged. And, and And I have to say, Trent, these things take time. You know, running a good campaign, as people know, you can't you can't do it in, you know, in these, you know, sort of crunched in time. We really have to be looking at the multi-year plan. So last night was, again, another situation where I went to pick up my groceries and they weren't ready. And I waited in the parking lot for an hour and a half because if I drove home, I was not coming back and we needed milk. We needed bread. I mean, we needed some of the basics. And it was partly because of the direct labor shortage at the grocery store, but even more so the lack of labor in the trucking industry. Shoppers are going through the store and picking up my items. They're having to take a lot longer because they can't find the items because everything is out of stock. I think we had like half a dozen items that were out of stock that they couldn't even substitute for us that I'll have to go and look for at a different store after school today. Jenny, just so that I'm square on this, you you have a a grocery store where you call or send your order in ahead of time and they're to have it ready and it's supposed to be curbside. You stop in, pick it up and go home. Correct. Yes. And we have continually been seeing the situations where 
like a half hour before it's supposed to be ready, we get a text message saying it's mm-hmm. delayed. Well, if you're waiting on a truck to show up, you're going to wait more than an hour and a half if they're if they don't have that item in in stock, which continues to be a problem. Although I want to just repeat, I, I, we are continually told that there's a truck driver shortage. I just drove to Ohio all the way basically to Pennsylvania border. Last night I drove uh, to Ogallala. My goodness, I've never seen more trucks on the highway. I don't know where this infrastructure bottleneck is at, but certainly not on the roads I run. I just, I can't picture someone who is food insecure. Um, Fortunately, we are not at this time, but, you know, to add that extra barrier to getting food for your family has to be making some impact on people who are food insecure. Well, and to Diane's point, which I heard loud and clear, is that while you spend time working on policies to feed people, you have to spend equal time on policies that created the situation to begin with. It, and it still comes back, Diane, to my yeah. overall premise. And we got politicians out of the business of manage pe- managing people's lives, we'd all be better off because we wouldn't have these challenges in accessing food. And and Jenny wouldn't have to worry where where the next thing on the shelf's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So to answer Brandy's question, because I've already paid for my groceries at that point in time, she asked why I waited that long. So what do you do because if you've I, already I, paid for it and they don't have it? Then how do they handle that? You have to go through a process to get refunded. Oh, my goodness. So and you I, see, I don't even going think in the that, store. that would be. Diane, 30 seconds. I don't yeah, I just don't even think, you know, somebody paying for their groceries with a SNAP card. I don't I don't think depending on the store and the state, they they wouldn't even have the ability to go and pay for their groceries and pick it up. They would have to go in the store, do the shopping and and, you know, go through to the register. Sounds like an opportunity for somebody to create that for people in the Massachusetts area. I need to take a break. We have one segment left. Who knows where we will go? I am going to start with that dot foods deal. I want to follow up on that, Jenny. But before I let you go, Diane brought up Protect the Harvest. Protect the Harvest is exactly why I went to Holmes County, Ohio this past week. We had a fundraising event for the dog breeders of this country, one of the most targeted individual animal owners. They do a great job taking care of those puppies, and there is a demand. We've seen more puppies sold in the past 18 months than any 18-month period in the nation's history. But we need to make sure that these individuals can take care of their dogs as they see fit, much like the chicken producers trying to produce a cost-effective egg. It's all about reducing the stress. We determine that, and Protect the Harvest helps get the information to you to make those speeches, so to speak, campaigns in Diane's words. We'll be at protecttheharvest.com. We'll be back with the last segment. Roll out after this. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Lewis alongside Jenny Swagger. Truth Bomb comes out during the break. That's a good deal. <laughs> Diane Sullivan joining us from Medford, Massachusetts, where I just talk about going to, still haven't been. All right. Uh, before we talk about intellectual property, which I think is a big thing. Jenny, you brought up the dot food. By the way, those trucks that I see on, on the nation's highways, dot foods from Mount Sterling, Illinois, must have a huge footprint and transporting food around this country next time i go to quincy which has been pretty often recently i'm gonna have to get over there but i did not know that they had it makes perfect sense to me because when i was in holmes county this week i met this guy who was a liquidator and i said 
What exactly is a liquidator? Y'all know what a liquidator is? I'm assuming someone who goes and brokers out the leftover food or food that is about to expire, which, by the way, an expiration date, that is not a legal requirement on food. That is something. It's a suggestion. Yeah. I just want to point that out. So this guy's a liquidator, not in. If he were an egg liquidator, it would be kind of make sense, wouldn't it? You'd take the eggs, make them liquid. He is not a food liquidator. He's a business liquidator. And so he buys, he takes off of their hands at pennies on the dollar, semi-loads of products from the, I'm not even going to name them, but you're going to know who I'm talking about, the online super centers for selling stuff like the old Sears and Roebuck catalog. He takes those truckloads of product that they they can't they don't have a home for whatever the case may be, and then he resells them out into the marketplace to his people. And guess who the number one uh, the number one mechanism he used to sell the products that he liquidates from those global internet stores? The very internet store he liquidated them from. <laughs> Can you believe that? I'm like, guy, you're a genius. Oh my goodness, capitalism. Yeah, he lives at Wooster, Ohio. So that was pretty incredible. Uh, the problem with that, the whole dot foods thing, Jenny, that the Dorothy supermarket that you're talking about is that Mount Sterling is not near a population center. Dot foods need to set that up in Medford, Massachusetts or, or East St. Louis, a place that, uh, where there's a lot of people that struggle. It's not, but it is always packed. And people drive from, you know, an hour, two hours just to go there to pick up whatever is, I mean, you can get like four bags of chips for a dollar or you could get um, a hunk of uh, cheese from uh, Tillamook for like 10 bucks or something crazy like that. And it's, it's worth it for people. So I don't, but I do agree. I mean, it does need to be. Yeah, probably something that we see in different areas, but it's very well supported. And every time we take a trip down there, we that the uh, principal calling you again. Uh, you know, that reminds me, Diane, of your and my experience together in Greenfield, Indiana, where we went to uh, the what do they call the feed? They were feeding people. It, it was a, a mobile Ch- uh, mobile food pantry. Food pantry. Pantry was the word I was looking for. But, Jenny, there were people there talking about how this is the closest one, that there was another one 15 miles down the road, but that was just too far. And here we talk about people driving hours to come and get a a bargain. Diane, you and I both know that there's just a disconnect in people understanding how tough it is for people to travel if you don't have the money to buy food. Absolutely. Um, And... You know, you you bring to mind something else, something that I've seen um, pop up since, you know, 2020 um, is this, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by people who want to control other people's diets, um, you know, and I don't mean just by the Humane Society of the United States, you know, doing what they're doing. I'm talking about, um, you know, like health officials. Um and it seems that there has been this increased interest, and perhaps it's because of the political, you know, climate, um, and 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 who's in power, 
um, this drive, it seems, um, the conversation keeps coming up of, well, you know, if we could just control their diets, you know, if we could get low-income people to stop purchasing certain types of food. And I'll tell you, meat um, for some groups is on that list. Um, if oh, we could absolutely. Do, yeah. And so, you know, again, the work that I do is to, um, you know, really, again, when I come back to centering the voices, people can have, if people are much more comfortable having that conversation without me, than they are with me. Because when I show up in the room, I'm like, okay, so tell me how, how it is that you want to control my life. Tell me how it is that I'm hurting my children by feeding them, you know, beef or chicken or whatever the case might be. And so the more that we can get more voices like mine, more experiences like mine to say, listen, Absolutely. we're not the problem. You know, we, if, if we're going to, you know, look at obesity among low-income communities, there's so much more that we need to be looking at um, and, and really engaging people. Because if you go to, if you go to somebody who's experienced, you know, hunger and say, well, what are your solutions? What could we be doing? You're never, the, the response is never going to be, well, gosh, if you could just control my diet, if you could just regulate what I put into my mouth, that's going to solve the problem. No, it's about affordability. It's about accessibility. And so, again, the more that folks like myself are in the room, part of the conversation, uh, the less likely those types of approaches um, are going to, 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 to ever really gain any ground or gain any steam behind them uh, because we would be there to shut it down and say, well, let us tell you how, why this doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's been um, for me, particularly something I've, I've been keeping my eye on um, who are those advocates that are out there trying to uh, dictate to others what they should be eating and in using, you know, government and programs and policies as, as a, as a means to get there. Yeah, you're talking point blank about the food guide pyramid, which is now called the dietary guidelines. That's put together by the USDA and Health and Human Services every five years. They continue to demonize the quality animal products that lead to healthy living, that lead to a proper zinc and vitamin D level in your immune system to fight off the, any type of virus, no matter what season the, the flu virus or whatever virus it is. They've been demonized and as a result, look at what's happened to chronic disease across the board. It's skyrocketed since we started demonizing those animal products. And this past 30 days, I've seen more uh, dietary officials actually targeting the USDA and saying, you created this vulnerability in the immune system because you told people to avoid the very foods that are nutrient dense. Let's just put eggs at the top of the list, Diane, because that's where we started talking about it, and continues to be the ideal protein for people that are in uh, food availability and anti-poverty scenarios because it is the most affordable protein source and it's a high-quality protein. Absolutely. I'm looking at, um, you know, Stacy's comment here. She says, you think you are shutting them down, but it's always about power over others. Absolutely. This, yeah. you know, this is mm -hmm. about power over others. And I, when I go into these spaces, I remind folks and it, it I know how to make a room uncomfortable. That's something, it's part of my charm because I speak truth to power. You made and, me uncomfortable for five years just to make your point. <laughs> um, and it makes me uncomfortable too. Like when I go into some of these meetings and I'm, you know, I'm with 
all, you know, all of these credentialed folks. And then, oh, here's that woman who, you know, has experienced hunger. Like the, the, the level of like, oh, well, what, what could she add to this conversation? And I, you know, sometimes I'm literally just shaking. Like this is really tough for me to do, uh, speaking truth to power. But, um, again, I can see, I can see the impact. And, and I think that I talk a lot about, you know, um, about the, the impact that we're having, right? Re- regardless of intent, I don't care about people's good intentions when it comes to feeding people. Um, you know, all the volunteerism, you know, packing meals, that's all wonderful. Getting food into people's hands, into their mouths, um, is what matters. But we cannot negate the impact that we have on people with our good intention. You know, people in Massachusetts, when they were asked in 2016, well, do you want to prevent cruelty to animals? Of course, the response is, well, yeah, of course. Um, but the intent, you know, doesn't match the impact. The intent of, a, you know, a, 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 a voting block of people that know so little about agriculture was good and it was pure. We, we want to prevent cruelty to animals. Um, but that's where we stopped and people didn't investigate a little bit further. Well, what is the impact and who's going to be harmed by this? Um, and indeed, you know, we're not a big state, but I know at the time we had about 700,000 people, um, that were on SNAP. Uh, those 700,000 people were going to be harmed when this law goes into effect. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they'll be, you know, st- still pushback and it just, I just, um, it's incredible to me how often low-income people are overlooked in the discussions and the policies, policy discussions mm-hmm. about them. It's, it's- so, Diane, you've inspired me once again, which you always do. But um, yesterday, for the first time, I saw the language that will be up here on the ballot in the fall of 2022 in the state of Oregon as they make it a crime to take the life of an animal, period before it's natural death. It has to die a natural death. You, it's not illegal to eat the animal. It just has to die a natural death. The low-income people are the ones that are going to suffer the most from that. Yeah. And that and doesn't just affect farming. It's also going to affect all of those us yeah. who are in the hunting, hunting industry. People that yeah. eat across the board, period. And all right, I Jenny, know. have we have we gotten you enough curriculum for a week or are we set or we need to do another show or what, what's the story? I want to make sure you got enough material for teaching I kids. Think, I think that we are awesome and I cannot wait to introduce both of you to the animal science class. You hit on several points that we've been talking about and it's always good to have them listen to someone else too. But I really think Excellent. this teaching gig, gosh, there's so much that could be done teaching in schools. I'm just, I'm seeing, you talked about, you know, speaking truth to power. There's also such a thing I think is speaking truth to today's youth. Mm -hmm. That needs to be. Uh, I see in Jenny Swaggart's future, creating a virtual agricultural online program where she doesn't have to go to a school to teach, but she can teach it from wherever she's at. But I love being here and being with my kids. Oh, well, there, there, in there lies the problem. But it's a short. You'll do that. Yeah, it's there. Will be something come out of this, Diane. It's been too long. Every time we get done, we say this, but you got to be here more often. Don't be so hard yeah. to find. Uh, okay, Trent. Um, 
We have I, successfully, you know, you're done. You're done. You're out of here. We've successfully oh, no, journeyed. Something happening in Maine that, that I wanted to share you're, about. Okay. You're going to have to come you're back. You're going to have to bring me back. <laughs> yeah. See how you are. That's awesome. Two weeks. We've Two weeks. journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. All three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.